Appendix A, Part Two of the Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt, Appendix A, The Trusts, the People, and the Square Deal, Part Two. The antitrust law cannot meet the whole situation, nor can any modification of the principle of the antitrust law avail to meet the whole situation. The fact is that many of the men who have called themselves progressives, and who certainly believe that they are progressives, represent in reality in this matter not progress at all, but a kind of sincere rural Toryism. These men believe that it is possible, by strengthening the antitrust law, to restore business to the competitive conditions of the middle of the last century. Any such effort is foredoomed to end in failure, and if successful would be mischievous to the last degree. Business cannot be successfully conducted in accordance with the practices and theories of sixty years ago unless we abolish steam, electricity, big cities, and, in short, not only all modern business and modern industrial conditions, but all the modern conditions of our civilization. The effort to restore competition as it was sixty years ago, and to trust for justice solely to this proposed restoration of competition, is just as foolish as if we should go back to the flintlocks of Washington's Continentals as a substitute for modern weapons of precision. The effort to prohibit all combinations, good or bad, is bound to fail, and ought to fail. When made, it merely means that some of the worst combinations are not checked, and that honest business is checked. Our purpose should be, not to strangle business as an incident of strangling combinations, but to regulate big corporations in thoroughgoing and effective fashion, so as to help legitimate business as an incident to thoroughly and completely safeguarding the interests of the people as a whole. Against all such increase of government regulation, the argument is raised that it would amount to a form of socialism. The argument is familiar. It is precisely the same as that which was raised against the creation of the Interstate Commerce Commission, and of all the different utility commissions in the different states, as I myself saw thirty years ago, when I was a legislator at Albany, and these questions came up in connection with our state government. Nor can action be effectively taken by any one state. Congress alone has power under the Constitution, effectively and thoroughly, and at all points, to deal with interstate commerce, and where Congress, as it should do, provides laws that will give the nation full jurisdiction over the whole field, then that jurisdiction becomes, of necessity, exclusive, although until Congress does act affirmatively and thoroughly, it is idle to expect that the states will, or ought, to rest content with non-action on the part of both federal and state authorities." This statement, by the way, applies also to the question of usurpation by any one branch of our government of the rights of another branch. It is contended that in these recent decisions the Supreme Court legislated. So it did, and it had to, because the Congress had signally failed to do its duty by legislating. For the Supreme Court to nullify an act of the legislature is unconstitutional, except on the clearest grounds as usurpation. To interpret such an act in an obviously wrong sense as usurpation, but where the legislative body persistently leaves open a field, which it is absolutely imperative, from the public standpoint, to fill, then no possible blame attaches to the official or officials who step in because they have to, and who then do the needed work in the interest of the people. The blame in such cases lies with the body which has been derelict, and not with the body which reluctantly makes good the dereliction. A quarter of a century ago, Senator Cushman K. Davis, a statesman who amply deserved the title of statesman, a man of the highest courage, 
of the sternest adherence to the principles laid down by an exacting sense of duty, an unflinching believer in democracy, who was as little to be cowed by a mob as by a plutocrat, and, moreover, a man who possessed the priceless gift of imagination, a gift as important to a statesman as to a historian, in an address delivered at the annual commencement of the University of Michigan on July 1, 1886, spoke as follows of corporations. Feudalism, with its domains, its untaxed lords, their retainers, its exemptions and privileges, made war upon the aspiring spirit of humanity, and fell with all its grandeurs. Its spirit walks the earth and haunts the institutions of to-day, in the great corporations, with the control of the national highways, their occupation of great domains, their power to tax, their cynical contempt for the law, their sorcery to debase most gifted men to the capacity of splendid slaves, their pollution of the ermine of the judge and the robe of the senator, their aggregation in one man of wealth so enormous as to make Croesus seem a pauper, their picked, paid, and skilled retainers who are summoned by the message of electricity and appear upon the wings of steam. If we look into the origin of feudalism and of the modern corporations, those dromios of history, we find that the former originated in a strict paternalism, which is scouted by modern economists, and that the latter have grown from an unrestrained freedom of action, aggression, and development, which they command as the very ideal of political wisdom. Laissez-faire, says the professor, when it often means bind and gag that the strongest may work his will. It is a plea for the survival of the fittest, for the strongest male to take possession of the herd by a process of extermination. If we examine this battle-cry of political polemics, we find that it is based upon the conception of the divine right of property, and that the preoccupation by older or more favored or more alert or richer men or nations of territory, of the forces of nature, of machinery, of all the functions of what we call civilization. Some of these men, who are really great, follow these conceptions to their conclusions with dauntless intrepidity. When Senator Davis spoke, few men of great power had the sympathy and the vision necessary to perceive the menace contained in the growth of corporations, and the men who did see the evil were struggling blindly to get rid of it, not by frankly meeting the new situation with new methods, but by insisting upon the entire feudal effort to abolish what modern conditions had rendered absolutely inevitable. Senator Davis was under no such illusion. He realized keenly that it was absolutely impossible to go back to an outworn social status, and that we must abandon definitely the laissez-faire theory of political economy, and fearlessly champion a system of increased governmental control, paying no heed to the cries of the worthy people who denounced this as socialistic. He saw that, in order to meet the inevitable increase in the power of corporations produced by modern industrial conditions, it would be necessary to increase in like fashion the activity of the sovereign power, which alone could control such corporations. As has been aptly said, the only way to meet a billion-dollar corporation is by invoking the protection of a hundred-billion-dollar government, in other words, of the national government, for no state government is strong enough both to do justice to the corporations and to exact justice from them said Senator Davis in this admirable address, which should be reprinted and distributed broadcast, the liberty of the individual has been annihilated by the logical process constructed to maintain it. We have come to a political deification of mammon. Laissez-faire is not utterly blameworthy. It begat modern democracy, and made the modern republic possible. 
there can be no doubt of that. But there it reached its limits of political benefaction, and began to incline toward the point where extremes meet. To every assertion that the people, in their collective capacity of a government, ought to exert their indefeasible right of self-defense, it is said you touch the sacred rights of property. The senator then goes on to say that we have now to deal with an oligarchy of wealth, and that the government must develop power sufficient enough to enable it to do the task. Few will dispute the fact that the present situation is not satisfactory, and cannot be put on a permanently satisfactory basis, unless we put an end to the period of groping and declare for a fixed policy, a policy which shall clearly define and punish wrongdoing, which shall put a stop to the iniquities done in the name of business, but which shall do strict equity to business. We demand that big business give the people a square deal. In return we must insist that when any one engaged in big business honestly endeavours to do right, he shall himself be given a square deal, and the first and most elementary kind of square deal is to give him in advance full information as to just what he can and what he cannot legally and properly do. It is absurd, and much worse than absurd, to treat the deliberate lawbreaker as on an exact par with the man eager to obey the law, whose only desire is to find out from some competent government authority what the law is, and then to live up to it. Moreover, it is absurd to treat the size of a corporation as in itself a crime. As Judge Hook says in his opinion on the Standard Oil case, magnitude of business does not alone constitute a monopoly. The genius and industry of man, when kept to ethical standards, still have full play, and what he achieves is his. Success and magnitude of business, the rewards of fair and honorable endeavor, are not forbidden. The public welfare is threatened only when success is attained by wrongful or unlawful methods. Size may, and in my opinion does, make a corporation fraught with potential menace to the community, and may, and in my opinion should, therefore make it incumbent upon the community to exercise, through its administrative, not merely through its judicial officers, a strict supervision over that corporation, in order to see that it does not go wrong. But the size in itself does not signify wrongdoing, and should not be held to signify wrongdoing. Not only should any huge corporation which has gained its position by unfair methods, and by interference with the rights of others, by demoralizing and corrupt practices, in short, by sheer baseness and wrongdoing, be broken up, but it should be made the business of some administrative governmental body, by constant supervision, to see that it does not come together again, save under such strict control as shall ensure the community against all repetition of the bad conduct, and it should never be permitted thus to assemble its parts as long as these parts are under the control of the original offenders. For actual experience has shown that these men are, from the standpoint of the public at large, unfit to be trusted with the power implied in the management of a large corporation. But nothing of importance is gained by breaking up a huge interstate and international industrial organization, which has not offended otherwise than by its size, into a number of small concerns without any attempt to regulate the way in which those concerns as a whole shall do business. Nothing is gained by depriving the American nation of good weapons wherewith to fight in the great field of international industrial competition. Those who would seek to restore the days of unlimited and uncontrolled competition, and who believe that a panacea for our industrial and economic ills is to be found in the mere breaking up of all big corporations, simply because they are big, are attempting not only the impossible, but what, if possible, would be undesirable. They are acting as we should act if we try to damn the Mississippi, 
to stop its flow outright. The effort would be certain to result in failure and disaster. We would have attempted the impossible, and so would have achieved nothing, or worse than nothing. But by building levees along the Mississippi, not seeking to dam the stream, but to control it, we are able to achieve our object and to confer inestimable good in the course of doing so. This nation should definitely adopt the policy of attacking, not the mere fact of combination, but the evils and wrongdoing which so frequently accompany combination. The fact that a combination is very big is ample reason for exercising a close and jealous supervision over it, because its size renders it potent for mischief, but it should not be punished unless it actually does the mischief. It should merely be so supervised and controlled as to guarantee us, the people, against its doing mischief. We should not strive for a policy of unregulated competition and of the destruction of all big corporations, that is, of all the most efficient business industries in the land. Nor should we persevere in the hopeless experiment of trying to regulate these industries by means only of lawsuits, each lasting several years and of uncertain result. We should enter upon a course of supervision, control, and regulation of these great corporations, a regulation which we should not fear, if necessary, to bring to the point of the control of monopoly prices, just as in exceptional cases railway rates are now regulated. Either the Bureau of Corporations should be authorized, or some other governmental body similar to the Interstate Commerce Commission should be created, to exercise this supervision, this authoritative control. When once immoral business practices have been eliminated by such control, Competition will thereby be again revived as a healthy factor, although not as formerly an all-sufficient factor, in keeping the general business situation sound. Wherever immoral business practices still obtain, as they obtained in the cases of the Standard Oil Trust and Tobacco Trust, the antitrust law can be invoked, and wherever such a prosecution is successful, and the courts declare a corporation to possess a monopolistic character, then that corporation should be completely dissolved, and the parts ought never to be assembled again, save on whatever terms, and under whatever conditions, may be imposed by the governmental body, in which is vested the regulatory power. Methods can be readily devised, by which corporations sincerely desiring to act fairly and honestly, can, on their own initiative, come under this thoroughgoing administrative control by the government, and thereby be free from the working of the antitrust law but the law will remain to be invoked against wrongdoers, and under such conditions it could be invoked far more vigorously and successfully than at present. It is not necessary, in an article like this, to attempt to work out such a plan in detail. It can assuredly be worked out. Moreover, in my opinion, substantially some plan must be worked out, or business chaos will continue. Wrongdoings, such as was perpetrated by the Standard Oil Trust, and especially by the Tobacco Trust, should not only be punished, but if possible, punished in the persons of the chief authors and beneficiaries of the wrong, far more severely than at present. But punishment should not be the only, or indeed the main, end in view. Our aim should be a policy of construction, and not one of destruction. Our aim should not be to punish the men who have made a big corporation successful, merely because they have made it big and successful, but to exercise such thorough-growing supervision and control over them, as to ensure their business skill being exercised in the interest of the public, and not against the public interest. Ultimately, I believe that this control should undoubtedly, indirectly, or directly extend to dealing with all questions connected with their treatment of their employees, including the wages, the hours of labor, and the like. 
Not only is the proper treatment of corporation, from the standpoint of the managers, shareholders, and employees, compatible with securing from that corporation the best standard of public service, but when the effort is wisely made, it results in benefit both to the corporation and to the public. The success of Wisconsin in dealing with the corporations within her borders, so as both to do them justice and to exact justice in return from them toward the public, has been signal, and this nation should adopt a progressive policy in substance akin to the progressive policy not merely formulated in theory, but reduced to actual practice which such striking success in Wisconsin. To sum up, then, it is practically impossible, and if possible it would be mischievous and undesirable, to try to break up all combinations merely because they are large and successful, and to put the business of the country back into the middle of the eighteenth-century conditions of intense and unregulated competition between small and weak business concerns. Such an effort represents not progressiveness, but an unintelligent, though doubtless entirely well-meaning Toryism. Moreover, the effort to administer a law merely by lawsuits and court decisions is bound to end in signal failure, and meanwhile to be attended with delays and uncertainties, and to put a premium upon legal sharp practice. Such an effort does not adequately punish the guilty, and yet works great harm to the innocent. Moreover, it entirely fails to give the publicity which is one of the best by-products of the system of control by administrative officials, publicity, which is not only good in itself, but furnishes the data for whatever further action may be necessary. We need to formulate immediate and definitely a policy, which, in dealing with big corporations that behave themselves and which contain no menace, save what is necessarily potential in any corporation which is of great size and very well managed, shall aim not at their destruction but at their regulation and supervision, so that the government shall control them in such fashion as to amply safeguard the interests of the whole public, including producers, consumers, and wage-workers. This control should, if necessary, be pushed in extreme cases to the point of exercising control over monopoly prices, as rates on railways are now controlled, although this is not a power that should be used when it is possible to avoid it. The law should be clear, unambiguous, certain, so that honest men may not find that unwittingly they have violated it. In short, our aim should be, not to destroy, but effectively, and in thoroughgoing fashion to regulate and control, in the public interest, the great instrumentalities of modern business, which it is destructive of the general welfare of the community to destroy, and which, nevertheless, it is vitally necessary to that general welfare to regulate and control. Competition will remain as a very important factor when once we have destroyed the unfair business methods, the criminal interference with the rights of others, which alone enabled certain swollen combinations to crush out their competitors, and, incidentally, the conservatives will do well to remember that these unfair and iniquitous methods by great masters of corporate capital have done more to cause popular discontent with the propertied classes than all the orations of the socialist orators in the country put together. I have spoken above of Senator Davis's admirable address delivered a quarter of a century ago. Senator Davis's one-time partner, Frank B. Kellogg, the government counsel who did so much to win success for the government in its prosecutions of the trust, has recently delivered before the Palimpsest Club of Omaha an excellent address on the subject. Mr. Prouty, of the Interstate Commerce Commission, has recently, in his speech before the Congregational Club of Brooklyn, dealt with the subject from the constructive side, and in the proceedings of the American Bar Association for 1904 there is an admirable paper on the need of a thoroughgoing federal control over corporations doing an interstate business, 
by Professor Horace L. Wilgus of the University of Michigan. The national government exercises control over interstate commerce railways, and it can, in similar fashion, through an appropriate governmental body, exercise control over all industrial organizations engaged in interstate commerce. This control should be exercised, not by the courts, but by an administrative bureau or board such as the Bureau of Corporations, or the Interstate Commerce Commission, for the courts cannot, with advantage, permanently perform executive and administrative functions. End of Appendix A, Part 2